This morning I'd like to uh, speak uh, about equanimity and complement the practice that we did in the meditation period. And I'd like to do that as uh, a continuation of our exploration of loving-kindness and compassion and joy. Uh, So to explore uh, what we call equanimity, uh, upekka, in the uh, Pali language. Uh, This amazing quality, which is ultimately a quality of being able to be balanced and even, and ultimately, in a sense, unshakable with whatever happens. But it can be a very confusing quality. Some of that may even come just from the translation, using an English word like equanimity. You know, the, the Pali word is upeka, and it uh, has etymological connections of a sense of balance. Uh, but it also means to just to look at, to have this kind of vantage point to be able to see. And it's related to some other terms. There's another uh, term in the Pali language, uh, tatra majatata, which is used in a very uh, similar way, which means standing in the middle of everything, and being able to see. So it's, it has connotations of balance and being able to see in a, uh, what, a um, wise and even way. Sometimes used to, uh, in a way that, that suggests impartiality towards, uh, towards all beings. But it can be confusing for us because we might ask the question, what does it mean? What does equanimity particularly mean in the context of suffering? <coughs> Today is Earth Day. What does equanimity mean in the context of global warming? Does it mean we're supposed to be just equanimous towards global warming? What does that mean? And actually, we're not asked to be just equanimous, but we're at, we are asked to be equanimous. Are we to be equanimous in the face of racism? The answer is yes. What does that mean? We're asked to be equanimous in the face of our own suffering. What does that mean? We're asked to be equanimous when others close to us are suffering. What does that mean? It can be very confusing because it can suggest something like uh, aloofness or being, as it were, in some ivory tower or on the mountaintop where we simply have this sense of wisdom, oh yes, that's happening, that's happening, that's happening, yes, it's happening. And there can be, we can sometimes interpret it, I think maybe something with the English word equanimity, which we have to keep remembering is only a translation. I think that's important to remember. we can really interpret equanimity in a way which can be sometimes an excuse for separating ourselves, for being somewhat aloof, for being somewhat indifferent. It's really an occupational hazard of any emphasis on wisdom or on, on balance. So the short answer to that question about equanimity that I'll, that I'll explore 
today and next week, the short answer is that equanimity is about keeping in balance, keeping, uh, keeping a balance in our lives, being able to be balanced with whatever arises, difficult experiences, beautiful experiences, to have a sense of balance in the, with those experiences and to have a sense of um, impartiality towards all beings. It's a direction in which we go. And yet it's understood to be actually a, quality, uh, a state of warmth and a state of the heart. And the context in which we've been exploring the four Brahma Vihara, I think, helps make that clear. And I'll <clears throat> speak in more depth about this a little later in the morning. But mature equanimity is warm. It's compassionate. And yet it has that quality of balance and wisdom. And it can feel paradoxical. Our logical minds can say, how do these go together? How can I have wisdom and balance and a sense of acceptance that this is indeed happening and not fight that and still be compassionate and loving, find joy and act to make things better. In a sense, it's equanimity is about acceptance of how things are in the sense that they're really happening, but it's not acceptance in the sense that they have to be this way. We use the English word in both ways. It can get confusing. And it's in the sense that Martin Luther King Jr. accepted that racism is real, that it's happening, but he did not accept that it was the future of this country. So we have to be careful about how we use the words, and as usual, the words can be very uh, subtle. So ultimately, <coughs> mature equanimity is warm, and it's deeply integrated with the other three Brahmavihara loving kindness, compassion, and joy in ways that can often feel paradoxical and don't make sense always to our logical mind. That's okay. That's okay. It's something to sit with. So sometimes it can feel like we're sitting with paradox when we do equanimity practice. It's like we can sit with, oh, like uh, just the example we had earlier, if it's okay to mention, with your cat, your new cat. And she would very much like her new cat to what? Be more loving. Be more, be loving. <laughs> be more cuddly like cats are supposed to be according to the design of the universe. <laughs> but not according to this specific cat. <laughs> and, and how can you combine acceptance that this cat probably has been, had some trauma, some difficulty and so forth, and isn't wanting to be just immediately loving and cuddly with your wish that it be cuddly and maybe you're acting in ways that help move towards cuddliness. <laughs> right, and we could uh, take that example with a number of other situations which maybe are uh, more challenging, 
in a way, or more uh, close to home in terms of suffering. So that's the, that's the short answer that we want to explore today and next week, that mature equanimity uh, is combined with compassion in ways that are not easy to integrate. So equanimity in Buddhist tradition is a very central quality. And some of us who know the lists of the various uh, qualities in Buddhist practice can notice that equanimity is actually at the end of several lists and sometimes taken to be a quality of our being which is, in, in a sense, quite advanced and close to the state of Nibbana or Nirvana. It's close to a really access to the sacred when we can have that sense of deep balance and ability to be both warm and wise in relationship to the coming and going of events, the coming and going of happiness, unhappiness, and so forth, and see with this um, big vantage point. When I wrote my book uh, on the engaged spiritual life, I interviewed Joanna Macy about uh, many things, but one of the things we touched on was equanimity. And she had this beautiful passage where she said, or in the, in the interview, she talked about equanimity as being uh, this powerful quality that uh, maybe on Earth Day, it'll be, it'll be very nice to read her, give her a reading of this, because it really was about, she was saying, one way to have equanimity is to see ourselves in terms of the evolution of the cosmos, and indeed the evolution of the Earth. This is what she said. If we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. <laughs> we are four and a half billion years old in terms of the origin of life, and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back that 15 billion years. The life that is now beating our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, seeing them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes, or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen. <laughs> the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We are part of the story. So it's this very powerful quality in, in the Brahma Vihara, the divine abodes that we've been studying and practicing, it's the last one. It's in a way the balancing factor or the rudder that helps loving kindness and compassion and joy to become fully mature. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening, the qualities 
of the awake mind and heart and being. Equanimity is the last one. It has that function. It's the last of the ten paramis or perfections that Sylvia wrote a book about <coughs> called Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. It's the last of those. And in a way, it's the, it's the culmination of many of these <coughs> lists. In fact, uh, very interestingly, in Tibetan tradition, they have thought that equanimity is so important that in the practice of the Brahma-vihara, or loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, we should practice it first and not last. I, I thought I'd read something from the Tibetan tradition. This is a beautiful book called The Words of My Perfect Teacher by Patrol Rinpoche. It's from the uh, 19th century. And there's a very nice passage where he starts to talk about the Brahma-vihara. He says this, the four boundless qualities, that is the divine abodes, are boundless loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Loving-kindness is usually dealt with first, but when we practice the four one after the other as a training for the mind and heart, we should start by developing equanimity, he says. Otherwise, whatever loving-kindness, compassion, and joy we generate will tend to be one-sided and not completely pure. Therefore, we should begin with equanimity. <laughs> And I think, but I think it's that mix of the four which is so beautiful. That's why in the actual session today, I had us do loving kindness first <coughs> before we did the equanimity practice. And I think that's really wise to do in our, uh, in our practice, to have the qualities of the open heart be close to equanimity when we practice. So we can practice <coughs> equanimity as a distinct formal practice, as we did earlier this morning. And I encourage us to just do 10 or 15 minutes every day, or do it while you're waiting for a bus. No matter what I wish for, things are as they are. <laughs> <laughs> or when you're, you're, you're at a red light, you know, or something. I mean, it's, I mean I'm completely serious. The, the way that a lot of these practices work really nicely is when you find these small moments during the day to do them. But do it in the morning. Do equanimity practice. Just do it a little bit. You know, uh, do it at a difficult moment. So we can practice equanimity uh, as a formal practice. We also, when we do mindfulness practice, are essentially practicing equanimity because we're learning to be balanced with all sorts of states of mind and heart. And so when we just do mindfulness practice and we sit with something that's difficult for us, that's developing equanimity thus developing the quality of equanimity. And so it's a very natural development just from our uh, formal practice and from our everyday lives. And we can actually bring to mind that um, we want to cultivate equanimity and bring it to mind when we get a little bit upset about something. You know, I had a very interesting experience a few years ago. I was due to talk about equanimity, I think, I think here, and I had the day before, I was working on my equanimity talk, and I had a doctor's appointment. And in fact, I think I had two appointments in one day, and then I was supposed to come home and have dinner with a friend. And um, the way these things often work, everything got fouled up as preparation for me to give a talk on equanimity. So, <laughs> so I think the uh, doctor's appointment, I had to wait almost an hour for that, that kind of naturally tended to mess up the rest of my day's schedule. 
And so there was the doctor's appointment. And then I think I had this uh, appointment with a friend. And I think uh, she canceled. And, but then I had an, another appointment. I was trying, and then I had these errands I was trying to do. And I think I tried to squeeze in one of them before one appointment. You know, so a lot of things not quite going right. And I was, at a certain point, I could notice I was getting a little bit tensed. And I said, oh, I'm preparing an equanimity talk for the next day. <laughs> so, uh, so we can really practice equanimity in daily life. It's, a lot of it is just remembering to bring the resources and the tools that we actually have into the situation by remembering, oh, I am distinctly unequanimous, and I can, I can be equanimous. So, and we, so we can really look particularly at difficult circumstances as a way to practice equanimity, because that's really in a way where the test is. And we can look at really challenging things as in part uh, a chance to cultivate equanimity. So I think of equanimity as having uh, a number of different qualities. The first one uh, that I want to mention is balance. And I'll mention a few uh, other qualities. And I think I'll save for next time. I was going to talk about the near enemies. I'll just talk really briefly about the near enemies of equanimity. But I'll talk first about the qualities, a little bit about the near enemies of equanimity, the, the qualities of our being that masquerade as equanimity one of the great and subtle teachings that we have in the uh, Brahma-vihara in the Buddhist tradition. And then <laughs> lastly, a little bit about the integration of equanimity with loving-kindness and compassion. Then we'll open it up, because this is, I know from past experience teaching, that this topic is really fascinating and challenging, and there are a lot of questions. <laughs> and so we'll, uh, I'll try to uh, be a little briefer than I was going to be. I'll just mention a few of the qualities of equanimity. The first one is really um, a sense of balance. One of the etymological meanings of upekka, U-P-E-K-K-H-A, is balance. Uh, it's really a balanced approach to whatever is happening in our mind, also a balanced approach to different beings. When we cultivate equanimity as a Brahma-vihara, we really have a balanced approach towards different beings that we, in a way, see the uh, events happening for any particular person with that sense of big picture, that big sense of causes and conditions working themselves out <coughs> for everyone. And whatever's happening is happening for, for very distinct reasons, causes and conditions, that I, my wishes cannot simply change that. It's that sense of the big picture of causes and conditions happening in my life, in my friend's life, in the world. Again, totally coexist with compassionate action to address problems. Totally coexist with that. So it's not, it's not this aloof position. But there's a sense of balance. Uh, one of the beautiful writers on equanimity, uh, Nyanaponikatera, who I think I have in the, in, in the first handout on loving kindness and compassion, I mentioned his beautiful essay, which is available on the web, called The Four Sublime States, which has great material on the four, particularly on how um, the four are necessary for each other. Beautiful material. He talks about equanimity as perfect, unshakable balance of mind and heart, rooted in insight. So rooted in understanding and insight. 
So it has that quality of balance. And it's important to see that equanimity is not the same thing as calm. You can be equanimous and balanced with a lot happening. And that's really important to know. You can have all sorts of things going on. You can be, equanimity is more like the still center of the hurricane, you know, the still center of the world. Some of you may know in uh, Jewish tradition, there's a beautiful, uh, almost like legend, of the 36 wise beings who, make, who bring balance to the earth. Does anyone know that? It's called the Lamed Vav. Sylvia really likes that. Ask her about it. <laughs> and the Lamed Vav are these 36 beings, many of whom are completely ordinary and not known publicly, like the person with the store who just actually happens to be one of these 36 wise beings who keeps the planet in balance. If there were only 34, we'd have trouble. <laughs> no. And it's that, but it's also like that sense of with all that happening, there's a kind of a stillness at the center of the hurricane. So we can have these, um, we can have equanimity with a lot happening. I think we probably can relate to each, to experiences like that. Do you know experiences where you've had incredible stuff happening, but you had balance? Balance is like surfing at Mavericks. <laughs> Maybe that's an extreme example, right? But to be a surfer, you have to have that sense of balance, right? And can you imagine the ec level of equanimity for someone surfing at Mavericks? Does every, everyone know Mavericks? So, uh, so there's that sense of balance. There's also, there's also a sense of um, kind of uh, evenness with every experience, an even-handedness with every experience. We can approach every experience really uh, with uh, a balance, an openness, an ability just to be there with each experience. And some of my favorite expressions of this uh, quality of equanimity come in Japanese haiku. So I want to read a few of those. Okay. One of my favorite comes from uh, Basho. Think of this, this, now remember haiku are short, so you have to listen. If you're, if you're daydreaming, it'll just come and go really quickly. <laughs> so here is, here is a uh, equanimity haiku from Basho, Japanese haiku writer from the uh, uh, 18th, early 19th century. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. <laughs> Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. Now what makes that equanimity? Yeah, he, he didn't say, he didn't have negative comments about the horse. <laughs> he didn't even say, the next time, you know, I go camping, that horse is going to stay some, not <laughs> somewhere else, you know. So there's that sense of just, this is just happening, and I'm not real reactive towards my horse. On the, on the other hand, maybe next time he would do it differently. So there's some balance there. There's, that's my interpretation. And a, some of the haiku that I found, actually, they, they all have uh, fleas in them. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know whether that, I don't know uh, Japanese cultural history well enough to know it may have been 
just a lot of fleas around. Um, this is from Isa, one of the great haiku writers about fleas. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. I'm sorry it's so small, the house. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. It's also, I interpret that as equanimity haiku. And maybe uh, one more, also by Isa. And he's going to talk about going to uh, um, a sacred mountain called Matsushima. Now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go. <laughs> So there's that quality. There's a quality of evenness, can you, you know, towards any experience. Oh yeah, this is happening. This is going on. Yep, please. Yep, yep, and so forth. So there's that quality of evenness. That's I think a, a second really important quality. Another powerful quality of equanimity, really of deeply mature equanimity, is a certain unshakability. We call it unshakability or imperturbability, and I think we we go in that direction with our practice. You know, people who we may have uh, heard of or some of, some of the great teachers, and I think particularly of some of the Tibetan teachers I've met or heard of who've been through really incredible conditions and have kind of seen it all. And there's something unshakable about their being. You know, they've seen, you know, think of the Dalai Lama who hears all of the atrocity stories from Tibet. And there's something which just stays very unshakable in him. You know, even though he can cry, he can be a lot of emotion. So it's not at all about not being emotional, but it's about is there something in his being that is not shaken, that has the capacity, because I think we need that really to be able to open to what's difficult. We have to have that quality of unshakability. There's a beautiful passage from the Buddha, again, I think a very appropriate on Earth Day, where the Buddha talks about equanimity and counsels his son to be like the earth. The earth is a metaphor for equanimity. He says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. When you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and heart and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and heart and remain. Kind of that unshakability quality. As was seen in that earlier quotation I, I read from Nyanaponika Tara, he said that equanimity was uh, what unshakable balance rooted in insight. Equanimity has a very strong aspect of wisdom. It really is the uh, Brahma Vihara, the one of the four, that carries the wisdom dimension, and so it 
carries wisdom and it carries understanding. It's that ability to have the big picture in relationship to what's happening. And again, when we're doing the practice, we're not demanding that we always have that big picture aspect, but we cultivate that. We cultivate a sense of causes and conditions. One of the ways that I came personally to see this more carefully, we can really, I think, really cultivate it <coughs> when we have uh, chronic difficulties with a particular person. Has anyone had one of those? <laughs> <laughs> that I know for myself, uh, one of the places that I kind of felt like I had a kind of a breakthrough in terms of developing equanimity was when there, were, there was someone who was a coworker who had um, some degree of authority over me, and he always seemed to be my nemesis. In other words, I was developing a wonderful project, and it'd be like there'd be some way that the project got more difficult because of him. <laughs> or I would um, be going in a certain direction, and it always seemed to be, and of course, he had, from his perspective, maybe some good reasons, so he thought. <laughs> but anyway, one, and, and what would typically happen was that over a period of time, he would do things that I felt I would get reactive. And one day, the same scenario played out. I found myself starting to get reactive. And something in me just clicked and said, we are repeating that same scenario that we have repeated 10 times. And somehow it opened up to me being able to see, ah, he's doing whatever he's doing for reasons. Causes and conditions, his own history, the um, institutional structure of things, you know, the forces that kind of compel him to do what he's doing in, in the organizational context, my own situation, my own conditioning, each of our psychologies. And I kind of came to see this whole dance happening in a bigger way. And it provided me with the opportunity to say, or to really ask the question, do I want to continue being reactive with this? And, you know, by the time I got there, I was setting myself for the answer no. But it was, there was something about seeing everything in a larger perspective, seeing the causes and conditions, which by itself gave a certain degree of equanimity. Because I could see that this was all happening. I could have more compassion, too, for myself and for him, because there were all these causes and conditions. And we were, as it were, almost like, you know, maybe in earlier times, almost like marionettes being played by these forces and getting into our dramas and our suffering. And when I could take uh, this larger perspective, it led to much more of a sense of balance and, and compassion. And I think that larger seeing is a kind of equanimity. briefly on the teaching of the near enemy. I think we can tell from looking at equanimity ourselves and maybe remembering those initial questions I asked about isn't equanimity uh, confusing at times? 
Do I develop equanimity in relation to my own suffering, others' suffering, the suffering in the world? That there can be versions of equanimity which in a sense get distorted. And I think I'm going to give more attention to this next time. In the classical teachings, there's this very subtle teaching which we've mentioned the, the last weeks called the teaching of the near enemy, so that all of the, all of the qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity have mm, imposters, which claim that they are each of these qualities, but they're distorted versions of them. That with love and kindness, it's something like a kind of grasping, compulsive warmth or love, we might say. With compassion, it's a quality of pity that looks like compassion, but is actually distanced. With joy, it can be a kind of overly, uh, what, uh, overly um, exuberant or excited or invested quality of joy. And with equanimity, the near enemy in the classical list is indifference. It's really equanimity which is not connected with love and compassion and joy. It's disconnected in some ways. It becomes indifference. A certain aloofness, a certain lack of warmth can be there when we practice equanimity. And these near enemies are the occupational hazards that we necessarily experience when we're cultivating these qualities. So if they appear, don't worry, just to notice them. But it might, that's why I think when we practice equanimity, it's very helpful to practice one of the other more, heart, more obviously heart-centered Brahma Viharas before we do the formal equanimity practice. It can really have them be in balance. Because ultimately, and I'll, I'll end with this, the integration of all four is what makes equanimity mature. And without that, it will tend to be distorted. It will tend to be the wisdom dimension without compassion, which can sometimes be overly intellectual or overly um, removed or be linked with um, uh, passivity, or maybe even uh, resignation. You know, that we really um, can be linked with, uh, even with despair. can look like equanimity, but it can be despair, actually. And so we only know that by really uh, looking carefully at our equanimity, and especially cultivating equanimity with these other qualities. So I think I'll, I'll finish with uh, a passage from Nayanapanikatara about the balance, the way these all work together. And I might encourage you to, to read in his, his text. Loving kindness imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into cold indifference and keeps it from selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world to be able to stand the test. <coughs> Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. <laughs> It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. 
a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three. It points out to them the direction they have to take. It guards loving kindness and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. <laughs> Equanimity being a vigilant self-control does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results. Equanimity gives to loving kindness an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great virtue of patience. It gives compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of suffering and despair, which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the common firm hand led by wisdom indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. In these and other ways, equanimity may be said to be the crown and culmination of the other three states of loving kindness, compassion, and joy. Let's just sit for a minute and then we can talk together some. time for any questions or discussion? Please. Um, I was noticing when we were doing um, the neutral person, yeah. the equanimity practice, yeah. that I was having a really hard time when you said um, find someone that there's no charge. Yeah. I, I realized that even like I tried to pick like someone like a the checker at my grocery store, yeah. that there was a charge. Yeah. I really liked her. Yeah. And then I had to go to someone that I just wave at when I come to work and there's the valet that I pass, yeah. you know. But what I realized was that it's very hard for me to be impartial. Yeah. And there aren't a lot of people that I come into contact with that I don't have some kind of um, judging as to, you know, um, as far as like how they are, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, it's all through my filter of, well, if they didn't wave enough, they don't like me, or you know, yeah, but, yeah, you know, even someone that I never talked to, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's Michelle, right? Cynthia. Oh, Cynthia. Okay. Um, so, um, so t a few things there. First, first, it's really great to. Um, observe just that there is that kind of uh, charge, you know, with people, or to notice that we, um, 
notice that we have that. So big, I think it's a big part of equanimity practice. It's that we, uh, we have those reactions, we have those interpretations. I mean, it's very strong. You know? um, I still remember when I go swimming, someone who yelled at me nine years ago Aww. in the swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I better look out for that one. <laughs> she hasn't done it since. But, uh, you know, they kind of stay with us in our, in our organisms. I think our, our memories probably partly, our brains are probably partly set up to do that. So just to notice that we do that is really, really helpful. And then in terms of finding someone to practice with, uh, find someone who's somewhat neutral. Doesn't have to be completely neutral, but someone who's kind of in the middle area. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Please, Karen. Yeah. I think one of the things you said was that equanimity was like the balance of the heart and yeah. the mind. Yeah. So that makes me think of kind of the balance of the left brain, right brain mm. within ourselves. And then also with equanimity, I think it seems like it has something to do with. I don't know if accepting is the right word, but accepting the mystery, yeah. the part that we can't, or our brains, our human uh, limitations can't accept how, like how a three-year-old can have cancer and mm -hmm. yet how we can be joyful. Yeah, that's a great, like everyone hear the point? It's really about the, uh, first was about whether equanimity was something about <coughs> balancing the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And that, that's actually interesting. Um, I think that it, it probably is something like that because it's, in a way, it balances these four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And so it has uh, more of a cognitive quality, so it would be connected more with the neocortex, where some of the others are more in the limbic system. You know, they're more our emotional bodies. And so it, it, I think it is uh, most likely, if we did the brain research, it probably would have a highly integrative function, is my guess. So I think that's, that's quite interesting. And the um, question, the other point was about the quality of mystery, of um, equanimity being linked with a certain aspect of just mystery, uh, being able, let's say, to be balanced when things don't totally make sense to us, something like that. You know, uh, particularly when we see um, suffering of certain, ki of certain kinds and able to um, have some balance with that. So I, that, that's interesting. It's um, really, uh, maybe we could connect it with a quality of faith. Uh, but I think that that's really, uh, that's helpful that there is some in equanimity, there is some quality in which, in which we rest in something deeper than this or that outcome. And, that's, that's, and that can have different expressions. That maybe goes to that unshakability quality, that there's a kind of resting. And when I, you know, it might be a way that we rest is like Joanna Macy's uh, sense of uh, equanimity is we, we, for her, she was saying, well, we rest in the four and a half billion year history. We rest in something really, really immense. Or we, we sometimes, probably we've had certain experiences where we had a sense of 
I am simply resting in being. And there's a way that I rest in this larger flow of, of being and presence. And whatever happens, could happen. You know, maybe <coughs> some of you have experiences where you rest in that way and you say, I could die right now. And that would be okay. Does anyone relate to that? Mm -hmm. That kind of experience? Mm -hmm. Where we rest in something deeper that can have a mysterious aspect to it, but I think it has an connect. It's, it's faith, but in the sense of a, a faith, faith that's grounded and settled and may have some understanding. It's not kind of blind faith. But there can be a sense of faith that lets us just rest in something <coughs> deeper and gives us resources for being with what's very hard. You know, I think if we look to a lot of the great figures uh, whom we study, you know, I know I've been looking, for example, at the life of Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Dorothy Day or someone, we find moments in their lives when there was something like that resting, when things could be very, very rough or confusing and they didn't know in their rational, with their rational minds what was going on, but they rest in something uh, deeper. You know. So thank you. Please. I'm not sure this is quite appropriate, but many, many years ago, uh, before I became involved in Buddhist meditation, um, I read an essay by a very famous doctor in the medical profession about equanimity. Hmm. That uh, I'm going to go back and look at it again. Uh, if you point out what you are, you know, talking about, I have no idea that. If ever he was involved in Buddhism, he was a yeah. doctor in the early 20th century, and yeah. and in <coughs> in discussing about um, in the practice of medicine that the best practice of medicine is where you practice equanimity, yeah. where there you see suffering in the patient, but you can't become so immersed in the yeah. suffering yeah, of the patient <coughs> that it clouds your judgment in how to treat them. A great, a great example uh, of, and be interesting to see that essay. And I, I reminds me, I, I've been in correspondence with a doctor at Stanford Medical School who sent me an essay about equanimity in the medical profession. But it's, I think, I think it gives a very kind of clear example of how uh, a doctor needs to have both the equanimity linked with wisdom and compassion. Mm -hmm. And then we could imagine imbalances either way, right? We could ima imagine, and probably it's very common, the doctors who, you know, partly because of the craziness of the schedules and the work demands, but also maybe for emotional reasons, um, focus on the equanimity side or the wisdom side or the clear seeing of what's needed too much. because. They, they don't have the capacity so well to really have their hearts be present and have that wisdom or clarity or dimension. the other way around, I yeah. saw one of my fellow residents yeah. treating a child who was dying of yeah. leukemia. Yeah. And he became so emotionally involved, yeah. you know, seeing the suffering of the family and this child, that he was unable to effectively deal with this, yeah. this family and yeah. had to turn it over to somebody else. Yeah, and that, and or in the long run, uh, and this is very challenging, but those in the helping professions who don't have that balance will tend towards burnout. 
yeah. in one way. They either become you know, one side too much, as it were, with the involvement and the heart burnout, too much on the other side, they become aloof and, and actually lose the, um, probably the, what inspired them to be there in the first place. But it, it's a very hard balance. And I think we can be uh, compassionate because I think we all know that that balance in our probably <coughs> true in various ways in our lives is, is not easy. But that's why this practice is so powerful to cultivate all four of these. As a regular practice, really helps to work with that balance of <coughs> compassion and wisdom, compassion and equanimity. So, thank well, you. Sort of fortuitous, or whether it'll be karma. Yeah. This was many years ago that I yeah. read that, and uh, I, it's a moment I never forget that essay. Yeah. It was such a powerful thing that I have thought about yeah. and today in, in Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, we're really, uh, can be actually pretty precise in terms of these practices as to what that balance looks like. It's not just two, but it's actually four qualities. Because we could have compassion and equanimity and be a little bit low <coughs> on the joy quotient. <laughs> right? And that could also lead to burnout. Please. Yeah. So when you say it doesn't have to be this way, it's hard not to fight it. Well, let's say in the future. Yeah, we have to we have to bring in the temporal dimension. Um, I, w I was doing that partly to distinguish between two uses of the word acceptance in English, which can be confusing because we use the word, oh, you should just accept it. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean it's one thing to, uh, in meditation, it's very important to accept this is actually happening right now. But this is actually happening right now. Let's suppose that I'm, uh, you know, I've been involved in a, you know, unskillful interaction with my friend. Okay, that's really happening. You know, I might judge myself for having said this or done that. And I have to, it's very important for me to accept that this is actually happening now and I did those things mm -hmm. and that's true. But I don't have to accept that I'll just keep on with the repetitive cycle. In other words, I don't have to accept that this is the way it has to be. So, you know, and, and we might have a voice say, oh, just accept it. <coughs> Meaning, just accept that you'll always have lousy relationship. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to tease out two aspects of acceptance, two ways we use the word. And uh, that was just one way of saying that. So it's to say, this has really happened, this is really happening now. There are maybe strong tendencies for this to continue in the future, but I can respond, and this is really at the heart of all the practice that we do, I can respond uh, increasingly out of a present-centered freedom that can choose whether I want to have uh, to react in the same way. That's where the freedom is, that's where compassionate action is. And it is a little paradoxical, so we have to sit with that a little bit. Um, does that help some? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you're always getting, we're needing to finish soon, but this time I want to let you uh, ask a question, but I'm going to 
if you can ask it briefly, and yeah. I'll try to probably give a brief response. Okay. Is that the okay? interplay of emotion and equanimity, I think about like when a family member died, yeah. you know, you're very sad, tears, you know, yeah. extended period of pain. Yeah. How does that, how do you, I mean, if you're not balanced yeah. at that moment. Yeah. So how do you, how do you find equanimity in in a very natural mm -hmm. situation of pain. Yeah, well that's a big question, so I'll give a, a short response. But we could talk privately a little bit, or we could, maybe better to bring it in more depth next next week, that's a way to, to, to work with that. But a quick answer would be that um, if we've been practicing these four and that situation occurs, I think it would be natural that we would um, uh, have both qualities. One way it might manifest is simply being able to let the emotions wash through oneself and wash over one without trying to suppress them because there's something unshakable in us that knows that we're not going to be, you know, destroyed by these strong emotions. That would be an aspect of equanimity that could even feel <coughs> deeply in the first place. That would be an aspect of equanimity. And uh, and so it's not, in that situation, we don't want prematurely to say, okay, I should be equanimous. A lot of times I think when there's strong emotions, it's very good just to let them be there. <coughs> but we might do an equanimity practice. Uh, and I think over time, it would, be the, it would be the capacity to deeply feel. But you know, the equanimity is partly the wisdom factor, so that would let us see where we're kind of not just having the sadness, let's say, or the sorrow or the grief, but where our mind is taking it somewhere else. You know, maybe we're blaming ourselves or blaming someone else or having a lot of interpretations that would kind of not just be the pure emotion of the situation, but go different places with it in ways that would be reactive or based on assumptions. And the equanimity factor might let us see those more, more clearly. So that's, those are two quick ways that equanimity might be balanced like that. But I'll I'll note that down, and maybe I can bring that into uh, talk next time. So let's just let's just sit quietly, because I think I want to. We're, we're over time now, and let's just sit quietly for a minute or so to close. Letting what was helpful be present for oneself. And any intentions that you bring for next week might be the daily practice of this formal equanimity practice, but especially increased attention to equanimity in the next week. Let your intentions be be set, what are they for the next week? And we end by remembering that we cultivate equanimity and loving kindness and compassion and joy, both for our own well-being and for the well-being of others. And we offer the fruits of the morning out into the world for the benefit of all beings.
So thank you so much. Equanimity is like my favorite of the problems. <laughs> Glad to share it with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.